The future of project management is changing fast. On Projectified with PMI, we'll help you stay ahead of the trends as we talk about what that means for the industry and for everyone involved. I'm Stephen W. May for Projectified with PMI. For an easy way to stay up to date on Projectified with PMI, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and PMI.org slash podcast. In this episode, we return to the topic of creativity with Scott Birkin, a former Microsoft project manager and best-selling author whose most recent work is entitled Dance of the Possible. In our first conversation, Scott explained creativity's often neglected role in project management, how to apply creativity in a process-driven environment, and why it will become even more important to your work in the future. Scott had many more insights to share, so we continue our exploration of creativity and project work right now. So kind of picking up from there, you have gone on record as saying, I don't believe believe in creative block. You have said, I don't believe in creative block. So say a little more about that. So you have said, I don't believe in creative block. Like you don't believe it's a thing. No. So t- tell us what you mean by that. Well, as long as you're conscious and your brain is functioning, you're thinking. There's ideas and thoughts going through your brain. That's just what it means to be alive and to be conscious. So at any moment, if you told me, come up with 10 ideas for a book or 10 inventions that don't exist yet, the the reason why people feel blocked, it's not about the inability to create. It's about some imagined standard they have for how good each idea needs to be. I could come up with 10 terrible ideas for books simply by taking 10 books that already exist and finding some negative word to add to them to make them sound terrible. Is that is that a particularly great idea? If I said, um, you know, Harry Potter for project managers is a book idea? No, it's not that much. But but is that an idea? Sure it is. So if I sat down, if I sat down... I mean, to, I'm not going to invest in it, but sure. <laughs> right. So that's where, that's where, I, that's when I say I don't believe writer's block exists. Uh, writer, right, it's, writing's an easier example. If if I feel blocked, quote unquote blocked, but I'm still alive and my fingers work, I should be able to sit down in front of a keyboard and write the sentence I don't want to write right now. I don't want. I can I can write that a hundred times over and over again. I can still create something. It might be terrible and banal, but I can cre- I can create something. And invariably, in the process of expressing my frustration by creating something. I will eventually get frustrated with being frustrated and I'll write something else. And soon yeah. I'll find my way back to possibly creating or thinking about something useful. But being blocked is usually about the, the some, for some reason, a person has convinced themselves of how the quality level of every idea that comes out of their mind has to be really high. That's the problem. If you lower that bar enough, to the point at which, which I'm saying, which sounds kind of extreme, but to the point at which that any idea you have in your brain, whatever it is, is okay to write down or put on the whiteboard, that anyone who's still alive and conscious can put things on the whiteboard. And then at least you are, you are, you're in the game. You are paying attention. You, there's some possibility you'll discover something unexpected in letting those things come out of your mind. And so... Um, and the dance of the possible, one of the chapters is purely about the importance of keeping a journal, that you have a private place for your ideas to go. No one's ever going to see it. It can be digital or on paper, but you, something you're going to use every day. 
And you just get the habit of whenever you have an idea, whatever weird thing it is, maybe it's about work, maybe it's about a song you want to write or recipe you want to try. It doesn't matter. But you have a place where you allow these things in your brain to manifest in the world. That habit is one of the greatest assets you can have as someone who wants to create things or solve problems because you're training yourself to appreciate and respect all the weird random stuff that goes through your mind and your relationship with that part of your subconscious will get better. And that's the part of your brain that's most valuable in finding good and interesting ideas, your subconscious. So it's no surprise that scientists and engineers and artists and musicians and writers throughout history, many of them, not all of them, but many of them had a practice of keeping a journal. For scientists, they called it lab notes, but it's really the same thing. They're always noting what they saw, what they did, what they thought, so they can come back to it later and learn from it and build on it. Yeah, it's as if we need to keep creating excuses and clever names for a diary. <laughs> yeah, I uh, d- diary, people get weird. And this part, journal is the same thing. And I, I've taught enough yeah. people about this that a lot of people get this look on their face, especially in business audiences. When I suggest that you keep a journal and you write stuff in it, people's eyes get really wide and they get really concerned. And 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 I, I often ask people like, "What are you worried about?" And they're like, "Well, they're afraid of they're kind of afraid of having something so personal exist in the world." And what I tell what I what I offer to people is that's fine, but if your goal is to be more creative, to be better at coming up with ideas for things, one of the most important relationships you can have and you need to invest in is your relationship with yourself, what you think about your own ideas, because if you're so afraid of what might come out of your brain then the odds of you discovering something unusual or seeing something from a better perspective is so much smaller because your inhibitions are really high. And reducing those inhibitions about what you think now increases what's going to make it on the page, which will increase what you'll have the confidence to pitch your coworker on or your boss. So I, I am convinced that one of the best tools you can have for thinking, forget even creative, for thinking at all, being a better thinker, is keeping some kind of a journal. I think that's brilliant. I think there's a lot wrapped up in there. And one of the things that you touched on, and I'm probably going to use different words than you did to describe it, but but this idea of having enough confidence and having enough of a conviction about your own kind of internal dialogue and your own thoughts, your own insights, your own ideas, that you're willing to first capture them for yourself so that you don't lose them, but then to bring them forward at the risk of them being judged by others, I think that's brilliant. I think a lot of great ideas go unexplored because we're not always willing to risk having those ideas judged by somebody else. Yeah, and I think that's one of the skills that a good project manager has about, forget, forget again, take the word creativity out of it, it's for solving problems. If you're looking, if you have a hard enough problem to solve and you have to, you're forced to be unconventional, then you want to allow people in the room to say things that don't quite make sense or that are weird or that are possibly embarrassing because that's where you're going to find, that's where the nugget of an idea that might lead to a solution is going to come from. If everyone in the meeting, in the discussion, for to solve this really hard problem, only said things that they were 100% confident would make sense, you're not going to find anything that interesting. Everyone's going to be really conservative and that's not... Almost all of the literature about creative processes and why certain teams are high perform, higher performing at working with new ideas and developing them, it's about trust and comfort that people know in these contexts, it's okay to say things that might be a little embarrassing or that might sound strange or that might be weird. If for no other reason, 
then the weirdness of me expressing that I think this should be a book called, you know, Harry Potter for project managers, it might make everyone in the room laugh at me a little bit, but that might open their mind to some other idea that maybe there's some reference from Harry Potter that they know of that is applicable to some, you know, some magic spell in the book that they think of because I said it that leads them to another idea. That's that kind of open-ended process is uh, inherent in, and creating a, a culture around a project where good ideas surface and get used. So you have uh, you have given me the perfect transition to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is the generation of ideas, the pursuit of creativity, the pursuit of effective problem solving in different cultures. Now I'm thinking cultures in terms of corporate cultures. Obviously there are differences across uh, different cultures around the world as well, but specifically in cor- corporate cultures. So you'll sometimes have a culture that is that is stereotypically more rigid and structured. You may have some that are heavily biased toward efficiency and productivity because of the because of their own history, because of the industry that they're in and so forth. You may have a culture that is highly resource constrained, so everything runs kind of very bare bones. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the differences from culture to culture and what that means, good or bad, to uh, creative pursuits. More often than not, there's a way to use the tools of problem solving and creative thinking successfully in any kind of culture. Because any successful business, even if it's a very conservative business that mostly does things with an emphasis towards the status quo, there's still whoever's whoever my boss is, whoever the executive or the department head is, they have some idea of what of to come back to your point of what good is. They have some idea of what that is. That could be reducing costs. That could be um, it could be increasing profit. It could there's some there's some identifiable vision they have for what goodness is. Okay, great. As soon as I identify what that is, I can now apply the skills of creative thinking and problem solving underneath me or with my own team to try to find new ideas and new suggestions that will live up to that idea of what is good. Now, I may not, when I when I come around, so I'm going to come to my team and I want to build a culture there where people are, they see the goal and they're willing to experiment. I might be very quiet about how I do those experiments. Maybe it's as simple as I give every employee a week, or, uh, a couple of hours every week. I budget my team's time so that I can afford this without my managers getting upset. But they got every Friday afternoon, there's some experiment that they are doing or we're doing as a team so we can learn something new. I don't have to broadcast it. I don't have to make a big deal about it. We just go and do it. And if, if we develop an idea that is a prototype and we test it out a little bit and we we figure out, okay, this is some merit. At that point, I take that idea and I go back to my boss without talking that much about how I came up with it or what process I used or what problem solving method. I go back to my boss and say, hey, we're working on this re- this cost reduction goal, right? He go, yeah, of course. It's one of the most important things we're doing this year. I go, great. I have I have a suggestion for you. And then I'd pitch him on the suggestion for reducing costs. And I'd be able to show we've done some legwork. We've tried it out in this way. Lives up to his goal. Now I am putting the burden on him or her to say how much do they really believe in their idea of good. If they, if I convince them that this new idea is good, they're going to want to use it because it's better than the old idea. They're yeah. not going to be stuck in this notion of I'm violating convention or I'm breaking tradition. I haven't disclosed what processes I've used. That's just within my own team. 
Um, and then if they adopt the idea, I'm now set up so the next time I come up with an idea, I'll have more support from my boss because I've already proven I can deliver. And then maybe at some point, if I become a rising star, my boss or my peers might say, how do you how do you do this? How do you come up with these interesting ideas? And then I could show them the process that we used, which may run against the traditions of the culture, but it's been validated by the bosses. This is a way to generate good ideas. That's how you get people to become more open-minded by validation from the power structure and then eventually validation by other people who want to emulate the process you're using to create those kinds of results. I love it. I love it. What's been your experience with getting people to kind of suspend their attachment a little bit and continue to leave the exploration open? Yeah, it's a complicated thing because in, in some ways you you do want a culture where people identify a decent solution quickly and go and do it. That's a healthy cultural attribute that people are they're, they're able to to work quickly and to find good good enough solutions. Um, and arguably engineers and, and project workers, that's part of why they're in that industry because they, they're good at that. But um, yeah. to, to, to your point, there are cases where you need to find that's you're not looking for a quick answer. You want something again, like the vision is to make this product or this service 50% better. Uh, the first idea, the first five ideas you come up with are not going to be good enough. So that, that falls, the burden falls on the project leader. Uh, this question of what is good. They have to run meetings a little bit differently, that the standard yeah. for ending the conversation is going to be different. And also on any team of people, let's say you have a team of 10 people, there's probably going to be a distribution of people's biases. Uh, bias is the wrong word, of people's um, uh, their, their tendencies. You're going to have three or four people that are, that are going to tend the most to want the quick and, quick and easy solution. And you also probably have three or four people that are going to be better at striving for a, be a deeper, more complete idea. So if I had a process, if I had a, a, a project where I wanted a, a big, I'd probably start with a, a smaller group comprised of people who naturally extend, they want, to, they want to go deeper. I'd probably start with them and build some esprit de corps with them uh, before I opened up the project to more people. Uh, yeah. one, one thing I'm recalling, this used to happen all the time when I worked as a project manager on software teams, that we'd be at the beginning of a project and we start we try to start brainstorming a, a different solutions to a particular problem that we ident identified customers were having. And in the conversation where we're trying to come up with ideas, engineers would very quickly go, oh, I I've seen this code. I can just go and do it this afternoon. <laughs> and I, or they, they draw a diagram right. for how to solve it. And I'd go, no, 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 no. We're not trying to solve the problem right now. We're just trying to talk about like concepts. And, and so uh, eventually we created a rule for some of these meetings where you're not actually allowed to discuss the solution. We're going to talk for like 30 wow. minutes or 40 minutes and you don't have to stay in the room. If this drives you crazy, you don't have to stay in the room. Well, I was going to say that would actually create physical pain for some people. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, that's, and we, I, I, those people, they, they provide a great function to a project, but they're not the best people to be in the room when you're trying to explore the unknown and you're trying to deliberately force yourself to not be so conventional. Uh, they're going to have a hard time. So that's what I would do is I'd say, you don't have to stay. What we're going to do here, though, is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep poking to find the, cor the corners. What unexplored ways are there to solve this problem? Uh, what ways from history is this problem solved like 15 years ago? That's often a fun way to be creative is actually by 
um, in organizations that get so obsessed with tradition, there's often a way to go back in time to how a problem was solved like 15 years ago in the same organization that was once used but got abandoned for the wrong reasons. And you can bring it back. And people go, we don't, this is too different. You can go, no, this is, this is how this was solved here. No, this is your own history. Ago. Right, right. Yeah. So something, anyway, uh, but so uh, there, I think there are ways as a project lead to define the context of what the goal of a conversation is and to establish the boundaries and then defend them and do it in a way that's not restrictive. People can choose to stay if they want to follow along, but um, to weight the tables towards people who are normally have an aptitude and a, um, they're drawn to those sorts of conversations, start with them first. Yeah. I also know from your writing and speaking that you do not believe that there is any set of clever techniques that can solve people's larger creativity and problem-solving problem. And that said, give us the low-hanging fruit. So if I, if I say, look, uh, I've got to run a workshop next week. There's going to be a lot of idea generation going on if it, if it works out well. What is one of your favorite uh, idea generation techniques. So in this book, The Dance of the Possible, I try to distill down everything that I've learned about this subject in a practical sense of the word creativity in a short little book. And there's one chapter in the book that is the only chapter in the book that's strictly about idea generation. I don't think idea generation is very hard and you don't need that many different methods. So that chapter has probably seven or eight methods that are the basic ones that I think are the easiest to learn, most useful. But... Um, uh, so I'll, sh I'll share a couple of those with you. So the first one is the opposite, what I call the opposite game. And the opposite game is when you sit down. So normally in these, the stereotype, the stereotypical, like watered down brainstorming technique is you get into a room, someone presents a problem, and then everyone just throws that ideas, which you write on the right, what you write on the whiteboard until it gets people start. The rate slows down, and then you write them up somewhere, and you hope that someone does something with the list after the meeting. So. Um, those meetings often don't work very well because people are often too inhibited. They want to impress each other. They're not going to be not going to take risks. So the opposite game is simple. You you start you, you have the same goal. So let's say I'm the project manager. I want to figure out how to improve customer satisfaction by fifty percent. That's what I know is the goal for the project. But instead of starting there, I'm going to start with the opposite goal. I'm going to tell the room full of my teammates our goal for at least ten minutes is we're gonna to try to come up with ideas to make customer satisfaction worse by 50%. Yeah, That is our yeah. goal, deliberately make it worse. And of course, everyone will balk at this, it's kind of ridiculous, but I will insist. And at first, people will be slow, They'll say things like, you know, we'll make the system crash every two minutes. We'll, we'll make it so we send people the wrong order. But then little by little, people will get naturally very creative because just by psychologically the fact that you're allowed to say bad things, the goal is to say things that are bad ideas. It opens up people's inhibitions. They will go yeah. to places they would never go simply being told a positive goal. And Invariably, I've done this in companies and organizations all over the place, everywhere around the world. Invariably, it gets funny. There's something invariably funny and there's some, there's some tension that's relieved by discussing the possibilities of making things worse. So usually after five or six minutes, people are laughing, the ideas are funny, and it peters out. Fine. Two things happen that are good. One, you've got people laughing. They were building on each other's ideas and being collaborative in the same way you want 
in a brainstorming session. So if you flip it around now, go, okay, let's talk about how to make things 50% better. You've built a good environment in the room. People feel safer. Their, their endorphins are going because they've been laughing a little bit. So you've created a positive vibe in the room. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two, though, is if you look at that list of bad ideas, you can invert them and you can make opposites of them. And often some of those opposites actually are good ideas. So I, I, I just made up off the top of my head, you could make it so that the, the system crashes every two minutes. Well, what if the goal was that you looked at the, how often the system crashes and you made the goal to make that happen a lot less? That's a totally reasonable goal, a totally reasonable uh, thing you could put on the list of good ideas. And not, right, all those, right. not, not all those are going to invert well, but every, usually in every session, you'll get one or two ideas that's interesting in a way you probably would never have come up with if you wanted to find it head on. Excellent. Scott, it has been a pleasure talking with you. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun and, been, and you've brought, I think, great insight uh, we really try to deliver the kind of thinkers and provocateurs that have something important that this audience needs to be thinking about. And I think you have delivered that in spades. Thank you. I hope you're right. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll find out, won't we? Anyway, thanks again. We've been talking with Scott Birkin, uh, talking about creativity and the application of creativity and problem solving in the space of broad project management. Scott, thanks again. It's a You're pleasure welcome. and we look forward we look forward to talking with you again. Thanks. For an easy way to stay up to date on Projectified with PMI, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and PMI.org slash podcast.